Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. City mayors in the U.S. and around the world are on the front lines of dealing with the most pressing policy challenges, including climate change, infrastructure, refugee resettlement, workforce development, and more. To illuminate the important and developing role of mayors, I'm joined today by Elena Harkness, a fellow with the Centennial Scholar Initiative at Brookings, where she works on the project on 21st century city governance. She is on leave from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, where she served as a senior program officer for cities, focusing on the intersection of urban community development and emerging information technologies. Elena is author of a new report, Leading Beyond Limits, Mayoral Powers in the Age of New Localism. Also in this episode, senior fellow Mark Miro of the Metropolitan Policy Program discusses his research on digitalization in the American workforce. Follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Elena, thanks for joining me on the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks, Fred. We're going to talk about your new report and your research on mayors in a second. First, I want to admit to you in the audience that in my adult life, I have never voted for a mayor. I've never lived in a place that had a mayor. Well, there you go. I've lived in Arlington County, Virginia, and now I live in a community in Fairfax County that doesn't even have a mayor. So it's interesting to me how communities are governed in so many different ways. We'll get to that in a minute in your report because you do talk about some of the different structures of mayoral power, but also city council power. But first, I want to ask, because I think about this, again, in light of the fact that I've never actually lived in a place except when I was a kid that has a mayor. How has the idea of a mayor changed over time, say, in the last 50 years or so? So for one thing, the way a mayor looks has changed, and that's a great thing. So the demographics of mayors, thankfully, have changed quite a bit over the last 50 years, and they're getting more diverse and representative of the populations of the cities we lead. So I think we saw that just this last week, where more women mayors and black mayors were elected. 50 years ago, actually, this year, the first two black mayors of major American cities were elected. So it was Carl Burton Stokes of Cleveland and Richard Hatcher in Gary, Indiana. So hard to believe that. But you know, today, we have more than 470. African-American mayors leading cities around the country, and women have been making big gains, too. The first woman mayor of a major American city was Bertha Knight Landis, the first woman mayor of Seattle, Washington, and she was elected in 1926, but we still only have 21% of our cities being led by women, so there's clearly a long way to go. But beyond the demographics, the last 50 years have seen mayors emerge as really sort of leading corporate actors and innovators in ways that they weren't before. So they're still having to do all the things we think of delivering basic services, making sure our trash is picked up and the lights stay on. But they're also increasingly responsible for attracting and retaining companies, you know, for economic development strategies in a highly competitive global city marketplace. So it's not that they aren't still politicians. Of course they are. But this model of mayor as the, you know, entrepreneur-in-chief or technocrat-in-chief I think probably best exemplified by Mayor Michael Bloomberg in New York, that's a somewhat more recent phenomenon. I think what's also really fascinating about mayors is that, so when I was a kid, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. And Dallas was a very well-defined geographic space. There were these outlying communities that I barely knew about, but like Plano, Richardson, Frisco, and other places near Dallas. But they were kind of far enough away that they kind of ran their own thing. And Dallas was the big city center, and and it did its own thing. And now you can't tell the difference between where Dallas ends and where Plano begins. And I understand you're based in Chicago. It's very much the same way in Chicago and all of its outlying communities. So talk about the ways that the mayors of all of those kinds of communities 
now have to interact with each other. Also, considering that one of those mayors is probably, you know, from Chicago or say Denver. I think Denver is in your paper or Dallas or some of these big places. Yeah. Well, I think this gets to the idea that cities are increasingly metropolitan regions. Like that's the functional economic and social unit, if not the political one, that's defining urban areas today. So mayors do need to coordinate with each other. There are groups that help them do that. In Chicago, since you mentioned that, we have the Metropolitan Mayors Caucus. We also have a group called SSMMA, which is all the South Suburban Mayors and Managers getting together to talk about shared challenges and how they sort of collectively meet the needs of our region. But the reality is it's a fragmented governance environment, and that's part of the fragmentation that we talk about in the paper. And part of the limitation that mayors have is that they need to find informal ways of working together, absent formal governance structures for the region at large to tackle things like the shared water issues or transportation in the region. But it's largely informal coordinating measures, absent some sort of formal governance structure that makes that happen. And right here in our own city of Washington, D.C., the local mayor, Muriel Bowser, has to deal with not only the federal government, but Maryland and Virginia governments, right. plus the surrounding communities. That's right. And that's true in Chicago, too. We're part of a multi-state area. All right. Yep. Well, Wisconsin. Yep. The Great Lakes Indiana. Compact. Yep, sure. In the paper, you write that mayors are caught in the middle of two opposing forces of the new globalism. What are those opposing forces? We wanted to radically simplify a very complex set of dynamics. Technology and technological change is driving companies to change, the way we respond to problems to change very quickly, and everything is moving faster and faster and faster. So it feels to us on the ground. Bureaucracies move slow. So mayors are sitting in a place where in their cities they need to be highly adaptive, really responsive and very nimble, but they're sitting on top of large bureaucratic organizations that actually don't adapt very quickly. And this isn't just true of cities at all, right? It's a problem that the federal government, state governments face as well. But we did want to call it out as a dynamic that mayors, as the political heads of highly dynamic economic and social units, have to face in a really acute kind of way all the time. They're sitting in between these two, you know, the bureaucratic drag and the sort of technological drive to change. I also read somewhere, I looked up the data, that New York City, its population, just the city, not the metro area, but the city itself, is larger than I think all but 11 United States states. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating to me. So I think that leads into this other question on what is the new localism. So the new localism, which is also the title of a book by Bruce Katz and Jeremy Novak that's soon to be released. And they'll be on this podcast in January, I believe. Great. So you'll hear more from them then. But this is a way of coining a set of dynamics that have really been kind of facts on the ground for cities for a long time. The federal government is constrained because it has to spend a lot of money on entitlements programs and defense, and it's not spending a lot of money to cities in ways that it used to. So cities are not getting as much money from federal and state governments. Increasingly, though the political dynamics vary from place to place, there are a lot of cities that are at odds with their state governments because of just the division of sort of political preferences in states and cities. So for a lot of different reasons, cities are needing to come up with the money to tackle their issues, whether it's financing and delivering big infrastructure projects or meeting sort of the basic human needs of their residents, everything from housing to education, kind of on their own. And so the new localism is the way Bruce and Jeremy have coined this phrase to describe how cities are doing that, like the de facto problem solving that's happening on the ground anyway, despite sort of federal retrenchment and states that are sort of not investing in cities, even though they are in so many places the primary driver of the economy. So 
what does this look like in practice? It's primarily, first and foremost, recognizing that cities are networks of civic, public, and private actors. And even when the public sector is pulling back, there is, at least speaking from the U.S. perspective, a dynamic and vibrant civil society and also private sector companies that have, you know, deep investment in whether or not cities succeed or fail. So... The new localism is describing how all of these different sectors are coming together and working together and trying to break down really like what are some of the institutional design questions there? How do you structure an intermediary that helps to leverage private sector investment and public purpose in cities? And there's lots of good examples of that. But the new localism is the framing for this set of phenomena. A key quote in your paper that really struck me, mayors are often forced to lead on issues over which they have little formal control. Can you discuss what you mean by that? I think education might be a good example of this. And this, again, is highly variable across places. But some cities have control over their education systems and some do not. But regardless, this is a top issue for every resident of a city everywhere, whether or not their child can get a quality education. So it looks different in different places. There are certainly public school districts, sometimes many in cities. Sometimes there are, you know, special taxing bodies that, you know, help to deal with education finance issues. But it's only in some cases that all direct accountability for what happens in the schools runs straight up to the mayor. You know, the same is true of the police force. You know, there are consent decrees in some cities that mean the federal government has a say in policing decisions. There are civil bodies that, for good reasons have been set up to help influence how policing strategy is set. And so it's not as simple as holding one elected official, or in some cases not a directly elected official, accountable for the state of our police force or our public school systems. It's just, it's a highly fragmented environment, in some cases by design. So, Elena, what issues are mayors dealing with now that they didn't have to deal with a generation ago? So I think one of the most obvious new issues on the table is climate change. And this is not just coastal cities. Whether you're coastal or inland, the effects of climate change are being felt in cities around the world. So 50 years ago, you would never have heard of a chief resilience officer. And now there are more than 100 in cities around the world, and that phenomenon is spreading just because dealing with climate change means not only addressing the built environment, but thinking about the natural environment. So it's a very, you know, systemic response that cities have to mount to address climate change, and they're having to come up with creative new ways to deal with it. So a related but distinct issue is figuring out how to finance infrastructure. So in the United States and also just more established cities, this is about maintaining and fixing infrastructure that we built 50 years ago, that now these roads and bridges, we need to figure out how to reinvest. In other cities around the world, we're talking about building new infrastructure and how to finance that. And the McKinsey Global Institute has said they're projecting something like 106 million more low-income households in cities by 2025. We're going to have to build housing for all of those people. And so figuring out, I think they're estimating $3 trillion in public investment that we're going to have to put into that housing infrastructure. And so mayors are only one part of the financing equation for cities, but they're a big part of figuring it out. And finally, the third thing I'd say that's changing that wouldn't have been on the radar a generation ago is um, just technology. And as technologies are changing, mayors are being asked to weigh in on a really increasingly complex set of issues related to the digital lives of the cities that they lead. So how should cities capture the value of data that their residents and public transport systems are producing? You know, how do you provide broadband infrastructure so that every resident of your city has access to the Internet? What are the best ways to ensure that you have cybersecurity? And, like, well, how do you play into a national cybersecurity strategy? So all these kinds of questions, what does a good smart cities partnership look like? Like the ones that have recently been announced, you know, with Sidewalk Labs in Toronto or Microsoft just announced plans for Belmont, Arizona. What does it look like to negotiate, you know, a solid public-private partnership in the technology 
arena. I think you're seeing an increase in chief data officers and roles in mayor's offices that are trying to sort of blend the technological skills, but also the sort of public sector savvy that you'd need to be able to do this well. But I think that's a fundamental shift. In the paper, you research this question of formal powers that mayors have and the limits that they have given those formal powers. Can you talk more about what that means? Mm -hmm. So to get anything done in cities, I think probably the number one formal power we could call out is the ability to raise taxes, to find resources for your cities. And some have the power to do that within a range, but we forget that cities are you know, entirely empowered by first our constitution and then the states. So the constitution basically says any power is not explicitly given to the federal government, we give to the states. And the states from there roll it down. And I think people sometimes forget that, that we you know, only have the powers that the states haven't kept for themselves and that the federal government has reserved for themselves in cities. So that's a really important part of the dynamic. And it looks very different from place to place. So this, I think, comes up when you want to try to replicate a program in, say, in an English city that you're doing here. And most English cities don't have that power. Their budgets are set at the central government level. It's a centralized country, and you don't have sort of the toolkit that a U.S. mayor might have to try to address something like a foreclosure crisis or, you know, this problem of needing to build infrastructure that connects a growing region. They just don't have the same tools in their toolkit. Briefly in the paper, you discuss the different structural types that we see in how cities are governed. And one of them, probably the one people are most familiar with, mm -hmm. is the mayor, and then there's the city council. But what I learned is that the majority of structures are actually, there's a city council, then there's the manager type. Yep. Although the largest cities are more mayor, council. Can you talk about your findings and the relevance of those findings for the kind of structural bases of the governance. Sure. Yeah. So it's interesting because the majority of large cities have what we think of as the strong mayor form. This is where you have a directly elected mayor who then works with the council. But the key part of the strong mayor form is just to understand this, like that it is directly elected person. So it's visible. There's an office. You have a sense of what the platform is. There's an election. In the council manager form, that is the majority form, and it's the majority form of government for a reason. There was a progressive era reform movement to try to get politics out of city government and, you know, to try to professionalize the office of the mayor, effectively the city manager. And so that works well in a lot of places. And actually, what we don't know is whether or not one system really works better than the other. That was one of the questions we sort of wanted to see what we could find out about in this paper. And there's just not good data that says council manager form is effectively better at managing programs or delivering services than the other. What we did find is that accountability matters a lot. And in a directly elected mayoral environment, you have the power to choose to take that person out of office. So there is a more direct connection and a perception, at least, that there's more accountability there. But in council manager systems as well, your council has the ability to select the manager and to actually choose to switch that manager if they don't like their performance. So there's accountability in both systems. It's not clear which one works better. But I think the key takeaway here is there are a lot of different models. And certainly in the what we think of as a strong mayor model, part of what's really important about that is the ability to sort of be visible, be more accountable for results potentially, but also to sort of lead in a networked way to be able to sort of set the vision, drive the vision, and have that higher profile that we expect city leaders to have today. So I think it's become a popular form of government, if not the majority form. 
Have you found that any cities have switched their form of government? Yes, there are cities that have switched their form of government. Actually, Tulsa, Oklahoma, just fairly recently switched to a directly elected mayor system. It's happening probably more than we know, but there's not actually a really good data source that's sort of tracking this. One of the questions that sparked this paper, actually, was in Baltimore. There was an attempt to change the city charter to take away very specific powers from then-Mayor Rawlings Blake. And there were powers around budget and appointing members to various commissions. And it was a proposal on the ballot to actually ask the voters, should we take these very specific powers away? And what we found by talking to experts on the subject and also what the Baltimore Sun at the time weighed in and said was, that's not a good way to reform your government, piece by piece, having these charter reforms that go to ballot initiatives. Same thing happened in San Francisco last year. They were actually, all of these ballot initiatives failed, but there have been attempts to do this. And I think what the research and evidence shows is that if you're going to overhaul a form of government, it's best to take it as a whole and think about what the problems are you're trying to solve, not have these very political responses that are a little more knee-jerk and a little more piecemeal and may not add up to a more effective form of government in the end. Let's pause for a few minutes to hear from Mark Miro. In this edition of Metro Lens, Mark says that the digitalization of everything is prompting widespread anxiety, especially among workers who worry about their future in an age of brilliant machines. Hi there, I am Mark Miro, a senior fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings, and I'm gonna be talking for a few minutes about a brand new report from Metro called Digitalizing the American Workforce. Over the past half century, wave after wave of digital innovation has ensured that digitalization, the diffusion of digital technologies into nearly every business and workplace, has been remaking the U.S. economy and the world of work. So rapid are the developments, in fact, that While the digitalization of everything has become a hallmark of tech's promise of empowerment, it's also begun to prompt widespread anxiety, including among workers who worry about the future in the age of brilliant machines. What is their role going to be? And yet for all of the evidence that big changes are underway, surprisingly little data exists to track the spread of digital adoption. In the absence of such information, the digitalization trend, as prominent as it is, remains diffuse and hard to pin down, which is where our new report comes in, which is available on the Metro Program site and at Brookings EDU. Designed to clarify a major trend, the assessment provides a detailed analysis of changes in the digital content of 545 occupations, covering 90% of the workforce in all industries since 2001. What did we find? Our report is a true good news, bad news story in some ways, which comes at a moment of disquiet about the power of the nation's West Coast tech giants. To summarize five findings, I would say the major grisp of our report is tech empowers, but it also polarizes. According to our analysis, the share of American jobs that require high or medium-high digital skills based on deep knowledge of computers or heavy time spent working with them has soared from 45 to 71% of workers. To put it another way, the digitalization scores of 517 out of 545 occupations rose significantly between 2002 and 2016. Conversely, just 29% of jobs now require no or little digital skills. 
the top line finding, the U.S. economy is digitalizing at breakneck speed to the point that the number of jobs that allow workers to get along without basic computer knowledge is dwindling. On the positive side, the analysis strongly confirms and quantifies the sizable benefits digital technologies are conferring on many of their users, whether they be individual workers, industries, or places. Workers all across the skills continuum, for example, are being rewarded for the depth and the breadth of their digital skills through increased wages. In 2016, workers in occupations with mid or high-level digital skills requirements were paid significantly more than those in less digital occupations. Highly digital workers on median pulled in $70,000 a year compared to $30,000 received by low or non-digital workers. In like fashion, digitalization appears to provide industries and places a route toward greater productivity and better economic performance. The higher the median digital score of its workers, the better the productivity and the pay of a given industry. And the same goes for metropolitan areas, which are themselves rapidly increasing their mean digital scores. All things being equal, the higher the digital score of a city, the higher its median income. And yet there is a problem. For all of its benefits, it is impossible, looking at the occupational data, to avoid the conclusion that the digital wave is contributing to the nation's massive inequality problem. Leave aside the fact that our work suggests digital knowledge may be a partial stay against automation. Even so, the new analysis adds to the accumulating evidence that digitalization is likely contributing to worker pay disparities, the hollowing out of job creation, and the divergence of metropolitan economic outcomes. In that sense, the digitalization of America over the last four decades is bringing more inequality and polarization with it. At the same time, our data add to the growing array of studies that suggest that the digital revolution has contributed to the hollowing out of employment and pay. This is the famous discovery of MIT economist David Otter and his colleagues who argue that as digital technologies pervade business process and redefine roles, they alter what types of workers are hired and what they are paid and what they do because they substitute for rote work while complementing the more creative work of workers who perform non-routine or complex problem-solving and interpersonal activities. In parallel fashion, our analysis finds that job creation and wage growth have each been relatively robust since 2010 for both highly digital, computer, mathematical, and business finance occupational groups and low digital occupational fields such as personal care, food preparation. By contrast, mid-digital occupational groups like office administration and educational categories and administration have seen much slower growth and wage growth. And then there is the fact that while almost all metro areas are seeing their mean digital scores rise rapidly, metros with the highest shares of highly digital workers, San Jose, Washington, Salt Lake, Boston, Austin, for instance, have been seeing their shares grow even faster than have other metros. In this regard, the digital rich among metro areas appears to be getting even richer now as a consequence and are pulling away from the rest of metros on basic measures of prosperity. As to what we should do about it, tech's vast two-track impact on the economy and the world of work is a challenging problem. Some things are clear, though, but not everything. 
What's most clear is that individuals, industries, and regions all need to sign on to the project of improving worker skills, including both higher and digital skills, including coding, as well as more entry-level basic knowledge of workforce productivity technology. Such upskilling has now become urgent, especially since digital skills are becoming a prerequisite for maximizing the good of tech, including for basic economic inclusion. Less clear is how to push back against the inherently polarizing nature of digital technologies with their great power to both empower and divide. Certainly, a starting point is to begin to better understand the economic and labor market influences of these technologies at a time when the world is scrambling to do that. Likewise, policymakers, as they acquire greater recognition of tech's built-in tendencies, are likely going to need to realize that those tendencies may well require more concerted efforts to mitigate negative dynamics. Dynamics like labor market and regional polarization are not going to be simple to grasp and let alone limit. But as I wrote recently in a post with Amy Liu of the Metro program, it's time to get started on that work. At present, America has possessed no serious policy approach for addressing tech-based polarization of the economy, and it needs one. Mark had more to say on this topic, so visit our SoundCloud channel to hear his entire discussion. And also download the research at brookings.edu metro. And now back to my discussion with Elena Harkness. One big focus of your paper is what makes a mayor effective? And you asked that very pointed question. And I know you've mentioned a lot of different qualities of successful mayors throughout this discussion, but I would like you to really focus in on this question. What are the top qualities of an effective mayor? So we wanted to distinguish in this paper the formal powers that mayors have, which vary a lot, you know, and are given to them by their city charters, and the kind of capacities that mayors can build in their offices. This is why we call it leading beyond limits, right? Despite fragmented governance environments, and in spite of what formal powers you might wish you have but don't, how do you build up strength inside your organization? And I think the top thing we found is that given that cities are networks and that civic actors and private finance is so important and civic engagement is so important in crafting a vision and executing a vision for a city, the top quality that mayors need to have is an understanding that that's the case and an ability to really activate those networks. And that means, you know, being able to invest in setting a vision, in seeing the city as a system, so you're able to understand that something like a climate response is going to require you to marshal all the resources of your Department of Environment, Transit, Public Health, like just to be able to think systemically and then to recruit all those actors to basically execute on a vision over a longer term than possibly even one elected office cycle. So that's a complex set of things, but we see like the ability to articulate that vision, to find, if not inside your own mayor's office, then outside of it, the kinds of nonprofit organizations or quasi-public entities that will help you keep setting the table over and over again for that group of actors to come together who have no formal reason to do so, you know, but every shared interest in making a collaborative effort to address, you know, whether it's the skills pipeline or climate response, you just have to keep coming together to make that happen. And absent a formal structure, it's kind of in the mayor's court to raise people's enthusiasm and keep them at the table. Could you explain in even more detail this concept of networks? I've heard it over and over again in this conversation, mm-hmm. and we hear it a lot 
from a lot of other research that's coming out of Brookings. What are these networks? Mm-hmm. So let's think about like the familiar institutional forms we know. So governments, corporations, they're typically organized vertically. So there's a decision maker at the top. If you take PepsiCo, you know, Indra Noy is directly responsible for all the decisions of the company. They all flow to the top. Gina Raimondo, the governor of Rhode Island, right? It's a vertically organized structure. It's all going to the top. So cities, if you're talking about capital C city, you know, the city of Chicago, the corporate structure, the city of New York, that's a hierarchical organization too. It's still departments with an org chart and everybody's flowing up to, you know, in some cases, the directly elected mayor or to the manager. But if you're talking about the city, like the economic and social fact of the city, We all know that living in a city means living with the corporate actors that are giving us our jobs, with the civic entities that are ensuring that we, you know, have good quality local journalism, that, you know, we have everything from the settlement houses to the kinds of like business partnerships that are making downtowns livable and thriving in ways outside of office walls. Like all of that, like the complexity of cities, that's what we mean when we say they're networks. There's many hubs of leadership, civic, public, private. There are many different organizations that, again, have no formal governance reasons to work together, but have a lot of shared self-interest in making the city work. And so I think what we're seeing, given that fact, is the increasing sort of rise of intermediaries that are specialized in making those connections. So an example in Chicago, we have a group called the Civic Consulting Alliance, and they are specialists at talking to the public sector and defining a public sector problem and matching them with private sector resources that can be brought to bear to solve that problem. So they sit in between. There are other civic organizations that sit in between the public sector and the private on very specific issues. The Metropolitan Planning Council in Chicago is another such organization. But these kinds of intermediaries that are really able to understand sort of the special constraints of the sectors that they're trying to bridge are going to become increasingly important because that's the governance models we have are going to be increasingly reliant on this cooperation between sectors. You've said the city is a system, but you also say in the paper that the city is a learning organization. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so we wanted to think about what mayors can do to enhance their capacity to be strong network leaders. And one of the things that seems really important is the ability to adapt and adapt quickly to changing conditions. So this goes back to the caught in the middle of like fast technology change and bureaucratic inertia. So there's a management professor, Peter Senge, who coined this term, learning organization, way back in 1990 in his book, The Fifth Discipline. And he was trying to describe this very thing, how firms and how organizations develop this kind of adaptive capacity and capability to be able to respond to changing conditions, because you can't just keep doing business as usual when the world is changing quickly. And so he emphasizes a few things that I think are incredibly helpful and directly useful to mayors and their chiefs of staff. You want to encourage people to think across issues, to think systemically, right? Think about how all the different issues in your city might overlap as a system rather than just a collection of narrow departments that each have, you know, their swim lanes. So you also want to figure out how to inspire people's commitment and capacity to keep learning. And that's not an easy thing to do if you're sort of measuring to results all the time. The Boston mayor's office had something called the Office of New Urban Mechanics. And this, I think, is a great example of typifying like what it means to make a mayor's office in the model of a learning organization, to come together across the different sectors, you know, develop a sense of where the city needs to go, and then keep talking about how to do that. But they were willing to make very incremental change, not just like set a plan and come back and look at it 12 months later and see, you know, did we check all the boxes? Did we make all our milestones? It was viewing the city as what the city is, which is like a constant process of change and being able to have all the people that are charged with managing and running it 
you know, kind of keeping pace with that change and checking in regularly and kind of adapting and constantly tracking what's different, what's changing. Let's close out this conversation with a global view. You and others here at Brookings have talked about not only mayors in the United States, but mayors across the world. It's like, surprise, uh, other cities around the world have mayors. (laughs) How are city powers and mayoral powers changing in other countries? You you mentioned recently the English cities, for example. Yeah, so England's a really interesting example of a very centralized country that is figuring out it needs to give its cities more power because its cities are huge contributors to the economy. So actually, just this past May, six mayors were elected of what they call combined authority regions. So it was actually metropolitan regions within England that had directly elected mayors. So people actually got, for the first time in many places, to go to the polls and vote for new mayors. That's a fascinating phenomenon to us. We're fairly used to in the United States having directly elected local leadership in many places. This is really a fairly new thing. London has had a directly elected mayor for longer, but it's still a fairly recent experience. So there are other places, Chile, for example, the same thing is sort of happening. And it's two things, really. It's one, a drive for more local control, but it's also this question of regionalism and the metropolitan region surfacing over and over. So back to your coordination question in the beginning, how do we actually coordinate transit infrastructure investments across an economic region that is increasingly grown beyond the bounds of any one political entity. So I think those two things are driving a lot of shift between cities and nations. But there's also, and we see this all the time, an increasing sense that cities are sort of acting out beyond the nation in international networks. So we see this in the C40 on climate, compacts on climate, the compact on refugees, the way that cities have kind of stood up to say we all want to be sanctuary cities to protect immigrants and just make sure that we are cities that are welcoming to all people. So I think that the networks of cities that are leading on international issues, I think, is also going to be a dynamic to watch. I think it's so fascinating that the concept of mayor that I grew up with, that a lot of people grew up with, is just nothing like what it is today. (laughs) So thank you for this research and illuminating that fact and the path forward. And thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. Thanks for having me on, Fred. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Pamela Berman and Julian Chung. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.